I'm reading this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So we are in the middle of a series on evangelism, looking at how we bring the gospel to the world. And in our first sermon, Kyle preached on prayer and the importance of grounding ourselves in the, in the heart and the mind of, of Christ and in, of God. And the second sermon, Christ, uh, <laughs> um, Kyle preached on this idea of preparation. And, and in that sermon, the big theme of that sermon was God has already done the preparation. Christ has already done the preparation. So today we're looking at this idea of people and places. We're looking at people and places. And this is the sermon, or it could be the sermon, where you get the strategy lesson on inserting yourselves in the lives of others. And then you get the challenge at the end, the big question, are you being strategic enough? That's what missionaries do. That's what Robin Iris did in Afghanistan. Shouldn't we all be doing the same here? Now, I don't know about you, but what do you think? What do, I know what I think when I hear the words go and make disciples in the Great Commission. Carl read it to us earlier. And when it boils down to a strategy and I'm asked to evaluate how well I'm doing it, I can tell you it feels stressful. It feels burdensome. It speaks to a failure point in my own Christian life. Five years into the life of North Point, I was uh, interested in exploring how we as a church could plant other churches. And in part of that process, I went and did a church planters assessment to understand how church planters are assessed. And all of the questions basically asked, how many people have you led to Christ? They'd say, how entrepreneurial are you in leading people to Christ? How has a worship service you've led, led people to Christ? How many people have you led to Christ? And it was almost like this is the measure. How many notches in your belt? How many conversion scalps have you collected? When we talk about evangelism, it feels like we are never doing enough or we're not doing a good enough job. I'm supposed to be missionally minded, a radical follower of Jesus Christ, redeeming the world. And the fruit of this is measured in world transformation and the number of people led to Christ. Now, let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing in world transformation business? How are you doing in the numbers led to Christ business? Are you measuring up as a Christian? Are you being strategic enough? Are you being radical enough? Are you an influencer and a disruptor? For the Christian cause? Are you being missional in our context, strategically inserting yourself in the lives of those around you? Now today we're looking 
at what Scripture says of this uber-Christian narrative. And what I hope you will see, and what we're going to look at in two sections, are the following things. There is a worldly way to be a Christian, and there is a Christian way to live in the world. Again, we're going to look at this uber-Christian narrative and pull it apart a little bit, look at it, question it, asking and looking at these two ideas. There is a worldly way to be a Christian, and there is a Christian way to live in the world. And really what we're asking is not what does it mean to be a Christian, but what does it take to glorify God in the world today? So part one, what does it look like? What is, what is the worldly way to be a Christian? Now, what's your greatest fear? Not specific fear about something today, not running out of gas, but what's your greatest fear in life? What's the greatest fear you have for your kids? A joke that Patty and I used to tell each other was that when our kids were born, the first thing we said was, oh, this one could grow up to be president of the United States. And by the time they're in the middle of their terrible twos, we're like, I hope this one doesn't end up in prison. And, and our culture puts on us an incredible pressure to be special, to stand out, to not be ordinary. I'm going to read you a quote from Melissa Dong from Tufts Medical Center. I think it's up on the board, but this sort of captures the way our culture views what we're supposed to be. The United States loves weird, different people. It loves individuality and those who stand out. It seems that so many successful Americans have followed a non-traditional path. Everyone knows the first CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, was a college dropout, went back to take calligraphy classes. As a result, many of us have been trained to fear the exact opposite, fitting in with everybody else. The irony is that as children, we grow up in this world trying desperately to fit in, but suddenly this shift to the idea of being normal, of, of being ordinary, is undesirable and leaves some lost and confused. Normal or ordinary has suddenly become the new loser. And there's a, a term in psychology for people who are afraid of being ordinary. It's actually called, called koinophobia. Koinophobia. And the really ironic thing about that term is that it uses the word coin, which comes from the Greek, which means common. In fact, we talk about coin Greek or common Greek, the Greek that the average ordinary person would have known and spoken. When we think about the first apostles, the fishermen. We think about Paul, the tent maker. Very ordinary sorts of professions. So for many of us in North America, the greatest fear in this life is being ordinary, not having a glamorous job, living a boring life, having nothing spectacular to boast about. And this spills over into North American Christian culture. Of course, we need to run the necessary corrective. I'm not saying here that the desire for comfort and security should ever take precedence over the willingness to take risks or make sacrifices for the kingdom of God. Setting life goals of comfort, safety, ease, and professional success is idolatry. These, this idolatry is the ones we normally talk about here. So many other small Gs, small G gods, that get in the way of worshipping the one true God. And these are comfort, safety, ease, success. Certainly they are some of them. This idolatry is a real problem, and we talk about it a lot here at North Point. But the Christian corrective 
that we sometimes run against, this is also something that can produce another idolatry that can lead to either self-glory or self-condemnation. And this is often where we go when we talk about evangelism. This is often the place that drives our conversation about evangelism. Our culture leaves us in danger of taking the obsession with self-importance out of the secular context and applying it to the sacred context. You can either be an uber-missional Christian changing and converting the world or a failing Christian ashamed of the ordinariness of your life. Anthony Bradley is a professor of religious studies at King's College in New York, in New York and he coined a term for this self-absorbed uh, sort of missional narcissism is the term, and he defines it like this. When a zeal for local missions gets coupled with an inflated view of self. And he went on to talk about how, uh, in fact, in the, you know, in the old 60s church, everyone was leaving it because of the pressure, the burden of moralism, and how that legalism had consumed the church, and that the next generation was like, I don't want anything to do with this legalism. I don't want to do with this, this need to be good enough. The burden was too high. And he's talking about a new type of legalism that's creeping into the church. One that says you need to be an uber-Christian, a change-the-world Christian, a convert-the-world Christian. Now, of course, there's a diagnostic here, and it's the driver. Because, of course, we want to see the world come to Christ. We want to see the world transformed. But what we don't want to do is bring that ego piece, that self-glorifying piece, into the equation. And here's the question. Are you, are, you, are you taking the obsession with not being ordinary from the broader culture and applying it to the Christian culture? Or perhaps more cuttingly, are you taking the obsession with self and applying it to how to live in the Christian culture? Andy Crouch, most of you know, a Christian author, he puts it like this, and I, it's very... Very well said, I think. When we thoughtlessly grasp for the heedless rhetoric of changing the world, we expose ourselves to a temptation. We find ourselves in a situation similar to Adam and Eve's in the garden. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was the promise if they ate the fruit. Is there a way to change the world without falling into one of the many traps laid for the would-be world changes? If so, it will require us to learn one thing the language of changing the world usually lacks, humility. So there is, in fact, in our generation of Christians, this new legalism, this missional narcissism that either feeds or destroys our egos. And this is not a healthy evangelism. It produces either hubris or shame. This is the worldly way to be a Christian. So what is the Christian way, then, to live in the world? What is the Christian way to live in the world? The text that we read today comes from Thessalonians, and we started, in, uh, we started in, at verse 9. Chapter 4, we started in verse 9. Now, the first part of that chapter looks at lust. It, it, it looks at predatory lust that takes for itself. And that's an intentional contrast with the, the text that we transition into. I'm going to step through it first forward and then backwards to see really where Paul's going with this, particularly as it applies to evangelism. In verse 9, we read, 
Now, about your love for one another, and this is a direct contrast to lust. So he's talked about this predatory, aggressive, lustful approach to the world, and he's flipping it now and talking about the Thessalonians and saying, now, about your love one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Now, beautiful picture here. They do it well. And Paul is complimenting them. He's saying, you learnt this from God. You love one another well. You love each other in a way that gives, that cares, that invests, that listens, that knows, that supports. And in the second part of that, it's not selective love. You love everyone in Macedonia. And I want you to take a moment here, and I want you to look around the congregation. I want you to look at each other. And I want you to say, are you at all selective? in the way you love one another? Are there those that you would be more than willing to love well, and those of you that you're less willing to love, that you find it harder to love? Now, it's okay to find it harder, but the question is, are you willing to love everyone like the Macedonians did? And you need to confront yourself with that question. That's the question here, that, that, that's the statement here that Paul is making to the Thessalonians. You do this well. You love one another well. It doesn't matter how difficult, you might find someone, how much need somebody has, how much trouble someone causes for you. You love each other well. You care for, you give, you invest, you listen, you know, you support each other well. And this is not just within their own church, this is throughout the whole region. How do we do that with churches around us? How do we do that in terms of critical spirit? Oh, they're worship, their theology, their whatever. How do we come alongside? How do we embrace? How do we love? Do we stand up like the Thessalonians do as being ones who love one another and love all of those in the community around us? And they do, and they get credit for it. And then Paul goes on to say, after saying how well they've done, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Just contrast, right? And I would call this an unholy, sorry, a holy restlessness or a holy discontent. It's a term we sometimes use in the session where we say we're in the right place, we're where we should be, and yet we can feel God pulling us, feel God telling us that he's wanting something different or something more from us. And here he's saying you should live in a state of holy discontent. You should always feel, how do I love better? How do I do a better job of giving, caring, investing, listening, knowing and supporting those people in my church and those church in the church around the community? How do I do a better job of that? Even though I do it well, how do I do a better job? And I ask you now, because you do a good job, I think, as a church, but how do you do a better job? Who falls through the cracks? Who misses out? Who doesn't get the phone call? Who, ha who stands alone at the food table? Who feels a little awkward? Who do you want to talk to instead of someone else and yet you know that person's in need? Where is the Spirit convicting you to move into different places and build stronger and deeper relationships, to be more welcoming, to love better? So there's that holy discontent that, 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 that Paul puts on them. Not saying... You're failing. In fact, you're doing a really great job. But, but, but allow yourself to be convicted to love more, to love deeper. And then they go on in verse 11. 
to say live a quiet life. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you to. Told you to. Now, there's a big statement in here. Quiet life, by the way, doesn't mean don't make a lot of noise and disturb the neighbors. What this means is don't be disruptive. Don't go around just bringing your own little bitternesses or pettinesses or squabbles. Don't go around inserting your own agendas and disrupting what's going on around you. Be a peacemaker. Be someone who's invested in seeing the community flourish. That's what it means. It means don't be the agitator or the agent provocateur unnecessarily. Be the one that's trying to make the community flourish. As far as it lies with you, live at peace with all is what this is trying to capture. And then it goes, mind your own business. Now, we might like that statement, especially in an independent North American culture. Mind your own business. Get out of here. Don't come too close to me. Don't hold me accountable. Don't question my choices. But there's a difference between love and meddling busybodies. And in fact, that's made very clear in the next chapter as this is expanded by Paul, where he talks about warning, encouraging, helping, being patient with. And we have to find the balance. And we see that balance in Scripture too, and it's not an easy balance to find. There are times when we need to speak in, when we need to hold accountable. But I can tell you this, my experience in being in a position where we have had to, as a session, go and hold people accountable, the more we go to people who know we're invested in them, who know we care about them, who we have been present to and walked alongside, the more easy it is for them to hear that correction. We see that exactly happening. We see that mind your own business statement, in fact, in the case of Jesus when he's walking with Peter after he's broken bread. And he's telling Peter how he's going to die. He's restored him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. He goes through that whole process of restoring him after the denial. And then he says, you're going to die by being hung on a cross. You're going to be strung up. And Peter's like, oh, that sounds okay, whatever. And then down the road, he sees John. And he says, oh, I wonder how John's going to die. And Jesus looks at him and says, it's none of your business. Don't be a busybody. Right? So there is a discerning point that we have to find. And it certainly isn't probably where we would like it to be in North America, which is basically stay out of everything that I, that's, that's not completely public and visible. No, we need to be in each other's lives. We need to be warning, encouraging, helping, and patient. But we need to know where those boundaries are. And this one I really love, work with your hands. He's saying work with your hands. He's not saying that white-collar work is bad. I know we've got some graduates here. What did you do, Ben? You should have just gone out and, and you too, Grace, right? What were you thinking? He's not saying, saying that white-collar work is bad, but in this Greco-Roman culture, there was a strong hierarchy that saw manual labor, menial labor in many cases, as being inferior. And that hierarchy existed in the synagogues. It existed everywhere. And Paul is really making the point here, don't be such a snob. There's nothing wrong with that, in fact, and I even find it hard, to be honest, to elevate it because I'm so indoctrinated with the idea of education that it, it, I can say it intellectually, but it's hard for me to embrace. He's rejecting the snobbiness. Remember the disciples? They worked with fish that stink. Remember Paul? He worked with leather to make tents. That stinks. Paul is really saying here that menial manual labor is meaningful. 
meaningful. He's not just saying it's okay, it's good enough. He's saying it's meaningful. This quiet life, working with your hands, is meaningful, purposeful. He goes on to tell us in verse 12 why. Why the quiet life with any job, white collar, blue collar, or menial, is good. And here we get to the point of this sermon, really. To win the respect of the outsider and not to depend on anyone. Now, let's look at both of those independently. Win the respect of the outsider. The outsider, of course, is where we want Christianity to, to, to go. It's, where it's on God's heart to see it expand. And so we see in the beginnings the movement towards evangelism. This is the go, in a sense. This is the build the connection. This is the people coming and saying, what's going on? You're a little odd. You don't seem to be functioning the same way as everyone else is. Where do you get that dignity from? You're just, you're just a menial labor. No, no, I, I'm not just a menial labor. What I do has value and meaning. And not to depend on anyone. And here we see something really profound. Because what he's saying is, just feeding yourself, just feeding yourself or feeding your family is shaping the culture. It's making a difference. It's a biblical contribution. It's an influence. It shapes things. And people are looking at this and seeing things. So here we have, in a sense, this passage is to live a quiet life. Live a quiet life. doesn't matter what you do. If it's menial labor and you're just feeding yourself and your family, if you're doing that, people... And, and that's flowing out of this idea of a quiet life, this ambition to be this, then you are changing the world. And you are beginning the first steps of evangelism. I often ask or have thought to myself when I've thought about what does it mean to glorify God? Who is more faithful? St. Paul or the farmer who faithfully gets up in the morning, goes out, plows his crops, plants his seed, does in the right order, I'm not a farmer, but does the work of growing crops and sending them to market? And of course the answer is the person who's most faithful is the one who is motivate, whose motivation reflects God's call on his life and not selfish ambition. It is not premised on any sort of great, profound glory that this world puts on things. Philippians 2, 3-5, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to each but each of you to the interest of the others. That's the love piece we were looking at. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. <coughs> I mean, C.S. Lewis puts it in contemporary terms in a very effective, pithy little statement. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as he possibly can, as it can be acted. But to wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. So let's work this all backwards now. To have influence and to evangelize who God wants you to evangelize and influence and where God wants you to influence and evangelize, the who and the where, the people and the places, we need to respond to God's call and not to selfish ambition. And what's the difference between God's call and selfish ambition? Well, that's easy. God's call is to love one another and to love your neighbor. And you're doing it. And you're doing it. But you should feel the pull. You should feel the holy discontent 
to do it better. This text, and I just want to say this again as a sort of summary of looking at this text, this text intentionally parallels sexual lust and love. It is in, and it parallels that with ambition driven by the lust for self and ambition that's driven by the love of others. So we're going to sort of wrap this up now. I'm going to ask those same questions I asked you before. Are you being missional enough? Are you an influencer and a disruptor for the Christian cause? Are you being strategic enough, inserting yourself into the lives of those around you? Are you an uber-Christian or are you a failing Christian? Have you met the legalistic standing of evangelism for this week, this month, this year? Now, these are obviously the wrong questions. I hope you realize that they're the wrong questions to be asking. When your goal is to love God and to love your neighbor, evangelism will not be a burdensome measure of Christian success. It'll be a joy, a delight. It'll be worship, but not a burden. Now, I hope you have holy consent. I know that you love God and you love, you, you love your neighbor, but I hope you want to love better. You want to know, how do I love God and how do I love my neighbor more? Because out of that, everything flows. Now, we gave you the answer, believe it or not, in the first sermon. See, this sermon is series in this series. We did pray, and then we did prepare, and we basically said, God's done the preparation. And then we're looking at people and places, and we're saying, you know what? Just love God and love your neighbor. Live out your life. Seek the flourishing. Live a quiet life, and you'll find the people and the places. But let's go back to the prayer. See, prayer is where we get to know God, where we get to ask God, where we get to listen to God and to trust God. Prayer reorients. Prayer makes it all about God and not about us. It takes away that selfish ambition. Prayer changes our heart. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 9. We sort of skipped over it, but it's important. Who taught them to love one another? You've been taught by God to love one another. So prayer, prayer for the people Pray for the people and pray for the places God has put you in. Now, I'm going to give you an, some, an empirical example now to sort of wrap this up. Our best evangelists in our congregation are our older people. It's just without, without question true. And I think it's partly because they're less ambitious and they're more prayerful. If you move houses, I guarantee old people with the truck are going to turn up to help you move. I mean, I'm not talking like once. I'm talking if you move 10 times, it's going to happen 10 times. Recently, I had a conversation with another older person in our congregation. They were telling me about, they came to me and they said, I'm so excited. At the Tenebrae service, someone I've been praying for came for the first time. It was my hairdresser, and I've been praying for her for him for a long time. I, I've been inviting him to church for a long time, but he finally came, and it was the perfect service, and God orchestrated it just the way he should. And I know, I know this person well enough to know that she has been praying for this man regularly. I also know this person well enough to know that this was not some self-aggrandizing strategy to get another scalp in her belt. This is somebody who loves God and loves the people. And because she loves God and loves the people, she prays for them. And her heart is moved. And God puts the strategy. And God says, you're in this place. 
and she feels a joy and a delight and it's worship for her and it's not burdensome. It's, it's all of those other things to share the gospel. She is driven by love. It's God's strategy that's working in, our, in her heart. So our older people pray more and they love better. And they are not driven by selfish ambition. So I am not saying evangelism is not important. But what I am saying is it is not a strategy. It comes from the fact that you live in the world and you love the world and you love the world because you love God and you've got the heart of God flowing through you. And if you want that, pray for it, ask for it. Missional evangelism flows from love. Missional narcissism flows from vain ambition. As Christians, we need to know the difference. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series. And we pray, Father, as we move away, and we've done such a good job as a church moving away from moralism, but I pray that as we move away from moralism, we don't forget virtue. And Father, as we move towards love and loving one another well and loving you well, that you will put it on our hearts, that we will experience the great joy, that you will put the people in the places that you will give us the, the timing. Father, help us to trust you, to lean into you, to love you, to see the world the way you see it. Let us not make evangelism a new form of legalism, but a deep expression of love in the same way as living virtuously is to morality, may evangelism be to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.